Thanks for joining us today for the Servant Leadership Institute podcast. On this episode, we are continuing our conversation with Don Jansen about myths within leadership. We encourage you to listen to part one if you haven't already. Take it away, Carol. So Don, what's our fourth myth that we're going to focus on now? That's tough to say, fourth myth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this myth is that we like to focus on results first. And although that statement's hard to argue, you know, it's how, how can that be wrong? Results are what we're after, after all, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's appealing because there's definitely some truth to it. We always need to pay attention to results. I don't argue with that. But I, th- I think great leaders see more than results as their goal. They understand that, certainly this is the case in, in my businesses, that people are what create the results. So if you ignore the people and just focus on the results, it doesn't really work all that well. And it, it's not an either-or thing. It's a matter of where you put your focus first. Mm. And so the, the alternative to that is, uh, well, I really realize this when there's a crisis and things are not going well and everybody's running around like crazy. As a leader, where, where should you put your focus? Because there's lots so much going on. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, what you really need to do is put your focus on the people. Because if you put your focus on anything else, it's going to overemphasize that problem. But if you put your focus on the people and watch them and see what they need, they'll fix the problem. Whereas you can't, you know, you can't fix every problem yourself. So by focusing on the people first, that's really the big truth here is focus on the people first and the results will follow. That's a generalization and I think it's almost always true. So when you talk about putting the focus on the people first, would you include in that category the customer as people? For sure. You know, if that is what the issue is about, uh-huh. yeah, absolutely. Customers would be would be first. But I think even before them should come the people that work for you or that work with you or you're working for because they're the ones who are probably the customer facing anyway. So focusing on the people who will be working with the customers mm-hmm. come first in my book. That's a principle that we first actually heard about with regard to Southwest Airlines. Right. That was their philosophy, was to focus on the employee. Yes, and they do it so well that the customer feels like they're first, right? Yeah, yeah, because that employee then will turn around and do a fabulous job with the customer. Right, and those stories, service from Southwest Airlines are legendary. Mm -hmm. So it's a good example. Yeah. So what's the alternative where should leaders put their focus first and foremost? Yeah, it's really putting people first. And I had this, our CEO again is my example of, of a great leader. And early on, uh, he was a general manager in the Wild Animal Park. And I was early in my career, and we had an elephant. I remember the moment, 11 o'clock at night, with uh, the keeper on one side of me and one of our technicians and the rest of the keepers around. We had just watched an elephant die. Mm-hmm. It was it was a, a devastating moment. It was devastating for the keepers because they had a special relationship with this elephant. It had broken its leg years before, and they recovered uh, with uh, really a lot of hard work from the keepers and the veterinary staff. Uh, but it was just a, a, a valued member of their of the herd, and there it was. It had died. And I was upset because it was a disease that I thought I could take care of, I could treat. Mm-hmm but I was unsuccessful. 
what had happened is she had developed a disease called salmonellosis, and it's uh, common in horses and occurs in elephants as well, and it, uh, it's a devastating disease. It requires a large amount of fluids, replacement fluid, volume, and antibiotics, and we did the best we could with this elephant, and we struggled with her for about three days before she stumbled and collapsed and died right in front of us. Mm. So there we were, and uh, we went and made our calls to the people that needed to know, and and shortly thereafter, remember it's close to midnight now, the general manager showed up. He had been fairly recently hired there, and we didn't know him all that well, but he showed up, and and I was wondering, oh, what's he going to do? Second guess us, what is he thinking we did wrong and trying to quiz us as to what happened. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he was there clearly to make sure that we had our needs met. Uh, anything that he could do, he was there to do. He wasn't there to judge us. He wasn't there to tear us apart. He was there to support our needs. I can remember the feeling that we all got. It was still very sad. He showed that he that we were valuable to him, not just to him and the organization, but him personally. And that changed everything. That that made that validated the work we were doing, even though we were unsuccessful. And he's repeated that same pattern over the years. Whenever there's been a important animal issue going on, he would be there again, not to judge, not to tell us what to do, not to be looking for mistakes but being there to support us through a difficult situation that we knew that it was supported at the highest level of the organization. That's kind of a powerful thing that leaders can do is look at what the needs of the people are and not so much focus on the result or the bad result or a good result, but focus on the, the needs of the people. And in our case, it made it so that the next day we could do our jobs maybe better than we would have otherwise, and on and on like that. So it was a, it's a real gift that he had, and he's modeled that for other leaders that have come up. And it's, it's sort of the standard unspoken rule now that in a crisis, put your attention on the people first, mm-hmm. and the results will follow. Yeah, that's another way of supporting this idea of doing the right thing. Yeah. The organization holds dear. Yes, that's exactly right. Focusing on the values. Great leaders are not distracted by circumstances like that. They stick to what's important. And we know that people are important in our business, and they're important in everybody's business. So put your attention on the people, and don't get distracted by the circumstances. Results and circumstances are generally short-term, whereas relationships are long-term. And that's really where the difference between good and great organizations are is what the quality of the relationships. Mm-hmm. So to just reiterate, if you focus on the people, they are going to focus on the results. That's the right. The results will be there. There's always a time when you need to redirect them a little bit if they're off course. But in doing so, you're paying attention to them. Right. As, as opposed to just focusing on the results. So let's talk about this little joke here, the elephant in the room. <laughs> Accountability. Yeah. Where does that fit in here? Yeah. So often I hear servant leadership is, so, is soft and you're paying attention to people and you're really not holding 
holding them accountable. How do you hold them accountable if you're mm-hmm. being nice to them all the time? And they're really separate issues, accountability and treating people with respect and looking out for their needs. They're related, but they're not mutually exclusive. So let me give you an example in, in our business, and that's about errors and medical errors, okay? In the, in the human medical field, you've probably heard about medical errors and the, the effects on people and, and health, and we're concerned about that too because people are doing things all the time, treating animals, and we want to make sure that there are as few errors as possible. And so the, the question that a researcher named Ann Edmondson asked was, do better teams have fewer errors? Mm-hmm. And you would hope so, right? You would hope that they would. You would expect that they would. So she looked at that, and it turns out that she looked at several different hospitals and, and how well the teams were scored on team evaluation surveys and compared that to the number of reported errors. And instead of having fewer errors, the better teams reported more errors. And like she was a young researcher, and she's like, wow, this is not good. I can't. Uh, it's not what I expected to find. But it turns out the reason that they had reported more errors is not because they had more errors, but that they felt safe in reporting them. Mm-hmm. And that's the key to the whole thing. So safety, or what she calls psychological safety, and accountability are, are separate issues. And you can look at it like a two-by-two two matrix. So if you have high safety and high accountability, that's really a, a, where you're in the learning zone, where you're able to learn from your mistakes, learn from what's going on without being judged too much. If you have low safety and high accountability, that's an anxiety zone, is what she calls it. And you don't really want people in the anxiety zone because they don't function well when they're anxious, right? None of us do. So you want to make it safe to report errors without having a danger of losing your job or being yelled at or being treated poorly. So imagine, for example, you're a nurse in a operating room and you see the surgeon making a mistake using the wrong instrument or doing something that would potentially risk that person's life. But they've been they've been yelled at so many times by that arrogant surgeon that they decide not to say anything and that patient suffers for it. That's lack of, of uh, psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not what you want. So when I was a clinician and, and in a situation where uh, I could be making an error, I certainly wanted the people around me to point it out before I made the error. I might be embarrassed, I might be upset with myself for not catching it myself, but far better to hear from them in a caring way than to make the error and have them say, I knew they were going to do that. I didn't want to say anything because he's such a jerk. <laughs> so I tried to make it safe for people to, to say something and encourage them. In fact, if they didn't say something, then I would hold them accountable for that because mm-hmm. they were in the position to do something and they didn't. So, so that, that having high accountability and high psychological safety, that's where you learn. That's where in an environment like most of us work in, where it's highly complex and interdependent, you have to have the ability to uh, safely speak when you know something needs to be said and uh, be held accountable when something goes wrong without losing your head.
Yes, uh, this is such a huge issue because for most people, you don't want to report any kind of bad news, right? Right. And so in companies, that leads to a lot of inaccurate reporting or uh, reporting that is somehow um, fudged, if you will, use that term, camouflaged in some way instead of being talking straight. Yeah, and I think executives can get into that trap, really, because if they surround themselves with people who are afraid to speak their mind and they're stifled in doing so, they're going to tell you what you want to hear, which won't be reality, and you will be operating on misinformation that will not be good for you or for Mm -hmm. your organization. So you have to kind of look at it in the big picture. And again, humility comes in to play here. That's why all great leaders are personally very humble, in my opinion, anyway. It takes that humility to be able to receive information that maybe you would wish weren't true. Mm -hmm. But you need to know because it is true. Yeah. So that's really, really critical and so important in this area of getting results. Of course, we want to focus on our people first. They're going to focus on getting results. But in that process, they have got to be able to be in an environment where they can be open about the issues that they're experiencing. Absolutely. It's rare, actually, I think, for leaders to intentionally encourage openness and Mm -hmm. and safety in in reporting things. I think they're afraid people will take advantage of that and say things that will be not taken right. Mm -hmm. But in a good and healthy environment, it should be very safe to speak your mind and to speak it responsibly too, mm-hmm. not, not to hurt people intentionally, but to speak it with respect and, and honoring other people. Right. So first focus on people. And are there exceptions to this rule? I think there probably are, but I can't think of any. Because <laughs> when it comes right down to it, everything involves people. One of the examples that people often ask me is during a medical emergency, you have to give directions, you have to give orders. You're not looking for a vote, you know. You have to act quickly. And the veterinarian, in in our case, is often the person who is directing that operation. It still depends on how you look at it. I think if you take the position that you're in charge and nobody else is and you're going to give orders and that's it, very likely to be on your own when something goes wrong or on your own when you're about to do something wrong and nobody wants to say anything. So I think you still have to pay attention to people. When I was in a situation like that where there was an emergency going on, I would be busy, very busy in my mind with what needed to be done and what needed to be done next and what was going on and trying to figure out how to stop it. But at the same time, I had to keep an eye on what the people were doing, the body language, what they were saying, what they weren't saying, and mm-hmm. make sure that they were all okay, too. If someone was felt that, that, that something needed to be done and they weren't getting the message across to others, that triggered a red flag for me. We, we need to deal with what's going on here or we're going to not be aligned together in this process, and it won't go well. So you still have to keep an eye on the people even in a medical emergency, which I think is what kind of the extreme end of what people might think would be an exception. Mm-hmm. But it really, I don't think it is. Still need to address the issue at hand. You just don't forget that you're only as effective as your role on the team. You aren't the most important person in the room. Everybody's important. Mm-hmm. And in those medical emergencies, in a CPR case, for example, you have to pay attention to people 
before that, so they have to be trained. They have to understand their roles. You have to pay attention during, make sure that people are following the roles that they expected to be. And you have to pay attention to people after, because if, if you lose the animal, there's going to be uh, some emotions going on there. If you save the animal, there's going to be some emotions going on there. Mm. So you, you kind of have to pay attention afterwards as well to what's going on. In San Diego, when I was working there as a veterinarian, we almost always had an after-procedure discussion mm. so that we could see what was going on with the intent of um, making sure that if something didn't go right, we would correct it for next time. Mm-hmm. But often it was just to kind of decompress too and to see how everybody was feeling about their role and how it went and make sure that there was some unspoken things that they came out. Mm. So in the end, paying attention to people is still first in my mind. Yeah, and certainly uh, it expands the role of what we might think the traditional look uh, or definition of a leader. It expands it. It sure does. And even in those situations where someone is clearly in charge, giving orders, leaders emerge everywhere. Mm. <laughs> if they're, if it's a good team, it's, it's fun to see, actually. People who are there to serve others in their role step up and become influential in that work group. And willing to be accountable. Yeah, absolutely. Willing to be accountable. Yes. That personal accountability is uh, contagious. When, when someone takes responsibility for something, instead of shirking that responsibility or pushing off to somebody else, it becomes contagious. Which ties into you know how people are being influenced by you know maybe their management or you know their particular leader that they report to. Has he, have they created this safe environment? Right, right. That safe environment where learning is the is the goal, not not catching something, mm-hmm. somebody doing something wrong. And where uh, fallibility can be admitted, you know, um, it's a complex situation here. I could be making a mistake. If somebody notices that, it's your responsibility to bring it up, and I won't bite your head off. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's real important. And being curious, you know, to be asking questions about what's going on. So if, mm-hmm. if you're asking questions, other people will be more likely to ask questions as well. Yeah, and that that can make it a, a real learning situation and avoid mistakes. That that can help. It's a good way, actually, to ask about the mistake. You know what I mean? Like, can you share with me why you did it that way? Right. Yeah, there's there's a ton of good ways of bringing up concerns that could turn into mistakes that will be taken well. There's a lot of bad ways to do it. Like, uh, I can think of a lot of bad ways because I've used the most. <laughs> like, well, that's not how so-and-so does it. Or, uh, are you kidding? You're going to do it that way? Yeah. Anything like that is not going to work very well. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like you say, asking questions that are more helpful or showing curiosity rather than right. rather than judgment. It sort of leads people to seeing if they need to make a correction or not. Right. So that is our fourth myth, which was focus on results first, focus on the people and the results will follow. And then, of course, we talked a little bit about accountability and how we deal with that as servant leaders and creating safe environments, which are called learning zones, which I love that term, I love this concept. And then the low safety and high accountability situation where you create anxiety zones. Those are what we don't want, no anxiety zones. So now let's move along to our fifth myth, and that is 
The employees serve the needs of the leader. Yeah, I love this one because it's so wrong. <laughs> but it sounds so right. Yeah. You know, it's really the opposite of servant leadership. But it makes sense to a lot of people. And, and I think it, it makes sense because as a boss, you know, as a positional leader, you hire people to do things, right? And you may do it through um, delegation or you may do it through any sort of different things. It just seems obvious that they're there to serve your needs. But it doesn't work. <laughs> To be just frank about it or be blunt about it, it just doesn't work. And I think the reason it doesn't work is that it puts the emphasis on the boss, not the customer, not the client, not the mission, not the things that are really important. They put the focus on the boss. So an employee is working to try to please the boss and do all that, and it really doesn't help the organization reach its desired goals. Mm-hmm. Again, you're putting all your focus on a person rather than on a a mission or a purpose. Right, which is why you're there. And I think it misses a key point, too. That's what I have a hard time explaining sometimes. But, you know, bosses carry a lot of authority because of their position. And I know veterinarians in, in a working environment carry a lot of authority. And if they use that well, they can raise the whole morale of the work group. Whereas if they use it poorly, they can destroy the morale. So there's a lot of power in how they behave. And I think bosses forget that. They forget that they can be scary just because they're bosses. They forget that that authority can do a lot of damage with that authority. So by turning it around and upside down, or instead of being served, you serve others, it changes the dynamic to be one in which this person with power and authority now is working for me and is looking out for my best interest. Mm. Oh my gosh, that changes everything. Mm. Now I am willing to do a lot more than I was willing to do before because somebody in authority is in my square, in my best interest. So that's the big truth now is really great leaders serve the needs of their employees rather than what seems obvious that employees serve the needs of the, the boss. It's kind of that paradox that authority figures who serve the needs of others get a lot more back from their employees than they give. And uh, the authority shows that they value people as people and not just their job function, which is what we've talked about before. And in the end, that produces a, a fierce loyalty in incredibly productive employees, which is, which is what you want, but you can't force that. You can't control that. You have to be there for them, and they'll... There for you. You know, you you made the point of bosses profoundly affecting the work lives of their direct reports, and you know, just to expand on that, and certainly if it if it affects you at work, it's going to affect you at home. Yep. The two cannot operate separately. Eventually, it's going to start rubbing off at home, mm-hmm. and taken to the extreme, affect you know, the health and well-being of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, I, I think sometimes we don't realize how critical those work environments really are on people. And how one individual leading who is a poor leader, as you said earlier, Don, can create tremendous damage. Yeah. And I have to go back to my example of our CEO retiring and the, um, the impact that, Uh, he has had on this organization and he has done it 
totally as a servant leader, as serving others. I can tell you, I was there for his retirement uh, event. I wouldn't call it a party because he would not allow a party. They had to kind of sneak it in on him. He was on, doing a kind of a final walk through the zoo and everybody was waiting at the end of where he was going to walk. And he walked down this aisle of people that you could tell had tremendous loyalty to him based on relationships that he had developed over the years. And that fierce loyalty can happen. Mm-hmm. But another example, kind of a transformative example that I have that I talked about in the book was a veterinarian that worked for us that wanted to be a leader, wanted to be a positional leader, wanted to have authority. And he was very smart, had all the credentials and all the capabilities, and he was frustrated that he wasn't able to advance in the organization. But it was because his interest was his own well-being, and not so much for those around him that he worked with. And he eventually figured that out, which I was very pleased that he was able to do that. And he did get a job as a leader at a different zoo, a very good zoo. And he reflected back on that and during a presentation that he gave to the zoo veterinarians at our annual meeting. And he called it uh, the transition from an individual contributor to a department head which is what he, the transition he made. And he showed this slide that really encapsulates servant leadership, I think. The slide showed the words me in big letters with the different job descriptions or titles that were of people that worked with him, like administration, technicians, keepers. They were all in small print, but the me was big. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is how I saw things before. Uh, I was in tiled to more than others because I was smart and capable and I earned it. So I expected more from everybody than I gave. And then he showed the next slide and it was the opposite. Me was in very small letters and the letters of the support staff and others that worked with him were in big letters. He said, this is how I see things now. I'm here to serve others rather than to be served myself. And he said that that is what gave him joy now, is to show that to other people and to show them the path that it took him a long time to get to, and that's what gives him joy now. Mm, what a great story. That yeah, is. He's, he's quite a guy and really encapsulates servant leadership. It's, it's serving others, and it's, it's, it's a joy when it happens. Yeah. So let me just recap our five myths that we talked about. And myth number one is that leaders are in control and tell people what to do. And the truth to that is that great leaders learn to give up the control and give it to others. Myth number two is only the boss can be the leader. Great leaders are born with leadership charisma. The truth is that anyone can be a great leader, regardless of position or personality. Myth number three, credentials make a leader. Character makes a leader. Credentials just get you through the door. Myth number four was focus on results first. And the truth to that myth is that we focus on people first and the results will follow. And finally, myth number five was the employees serve the needs of the leader. And the truth is that great leaders serve the needs of their employees. So, Don, just in closing today, do you have any final thoughts for us about the myths and servant leadership? 
Yeah, you know, I think the the nine behaviors of servant leadership that SLI teaches are really important ones to look at again because they counter all these myths. Mm. And you know, they talk about serving first and building trust and and living your values. We've talked about all of those things. Listening, really thinking about your thinking as a leader, adding value to others, to demonstrate courage to increase your influence. We talked a lot about that and, uh, and live your transformation. That, that's what it takes. And I really like to look back on those nine behaviors every once in a while just to reinforce that because these myths are there for a reason. They're, they're the default. That's what, we, that's what I go to without thinking. It takes intent and thinking that through to do it What's the use these big truths? They, they they don't come automatically. But leadership is is a choice. We can do it intentionally or just let it happen the way the world dictates or the way the world will let you. You have to think it different. You think differently. So you can take that that broad path, that one that looks good. It's easy. It doesn't take a lot of thought. You just do it. But it it leads to a bad end. It leads to employees and staff that are fighting you rather than working and loyal to you. And it requires extra work to try to get anything done because of the lack of trust. And it can all fall apart really badly. Or you can take the other path that looks it's narrower, it's fewer people are going that direction, it's rocky and it's rough, but it leads to uh, a much better end and one in which you can look back at your career and be uh, proud of what other people have done, and you can give them the credit, and that your record will show that what you did. That's a satisfying direction to go. So my choice is obvious, but every I have to make that choice every day. Mm, yeah, the choice to do the right thing. Do the right thing. Well, Don, thank you so much for being with us today. And if you'd like to hear more from Don, get more stories, he's written a wonderful book called Upside Down Leadership. And you can uh, get a copy of that book at... ShopZoo.com or Amazon or Barnes & Noble even has it, I think. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you, and we hope you come back and see us real soon. Always a pleasure. You guys are doing great work here. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you'd like to receive a downloadable summary of the five myths that Carol and Don discussed, please visit our website at servantleadershipinstitute.com slash podcast. Thank you for joining us today, and keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon.